Thank you for those kind words. Um, and I want to thank you for down a little bit, uh, for coming to hear about NMSU's architectural heritage. I want to begin my talk today by pointing out that what I have to share with you today is based on an architectural and historical survey that I supervised last spring and summer, and it's part of a historic preservation plan that the university architects uh, office is creating for the campus with funding from the Getty Foundation. Brie Blasey and Marty Davenport, who are former graduates of our public history program, actually did the work. And so what I'm presenting to you today is the results of their research, and uh, both of whom are uh, not in Las Cruces anymore. Uh, and uh, most of the modern photographs that I'll be showing you today are photographs that uh, Brie and Marty took. I also want to give credit to a current uh, public history student, Victoria Brown, who has been working on um, helping to finalize the forms and report for this and uh, had created a map that I'm going to show you today. Well, I'll be giving you as a draft version. She'll be embarrassed that I, I'm not showing you the original but, or the new version, but it's what I had uh, electronically. Um, as I say, we're conducting a survey of the campus, and this is the map, the draft map that Victoria created, and um, some of the outlines are not as clear as they might be, so I'm going to walk over here and show them to you. We are recommending uh, to the university, although this will go through a series of public hearings to see uh, how you know, people feel about this, but uh, we're recommending four historic districts that we think are eligible for the National Register, and I'll point them out to you. The lines aren't quite clear here. One of them we call the uh, main academic uh, district on campus. And it basically takes in uh, the horseshoe, but it then goes and captures uh, the biology annex and uh, the astronomy building, uh, a group of buildings that are kind of one tier behind the horseshoe, which includes like Kent Hall, uh, Young Hall, uh, and then Down University. Well, that's the, the core of the campus and has many historic buildings, some of which are already listed in the National Register of Historic Places. There are, there's an agricultural district that has two pieces to it. Uh, and one of those pieces is this rectangle off of the Spina. Uh, and these are buildings that I'll talk about in a little bit that were built in the 1950s. Uh, because it's been historically the college farm. Um, and then there's also another piece of that district that's down here. Much of it is still agricultural fields. It also includes the seed building, uh, the USDA cotton gin. Um, and then there is another agricultural area that's on the other side of the freeway, the, the Fabian Garcia Horticultural Farm. And this is where the lines are not quite correct because it's a draft, but it actually takes in this area here. Um, there's a residential district that might surprise you that, that this is eligible uh, for the National Register of Places, but it's um, the kind of tract housing area that's all, that's all those little tiny uh, concrete block rich houses here, uh, and I'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, those are the four districts, but there's also a few buildings that you'll see here in blue. Uh, that this is kind of the residential area of campus that was developed in the 1950s and 60s. And we think three of these buildings are individually eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. Um, the buildings that are kind of in brown are buildings we think are eligible for the State Register. They're important buildings, but they're not old enough. So the buildings to be listed in the National Register of Historic Places must be at least 50 years old. And these buildings were built in the 1960s. But we think they might. Uh, have some merit for uh, consideration in the state uh, listing, but this would be a matter of debate, I think, among the community. Um, and then we also designate what we call heritage areas. Uh, and most of the landscape areas are heritage areas, but this is one I just wanted to point out. It's the circle. You can't really see the circle anymore. This is considered an important landscape element at one point. You see a little bit of here. If you from Fringer Mall, you know, you notice that you walk around the sidewalk and it forms a circle for no reason. Well, that's because they had, um, originally it was an idea of having this be a major landscape unit with buildings arranged around that. And the master plan has already been, uh, I don't know if it's been officially adopted yet, but uh, one that's under consideration at least is um, wanting to redevelop this sort of along the lines of the, uh, the project they wanted to 
so we have high hopes that the master plan will uh, be compatible with what we hope uh, to promote, at least for the preservation of the campus. Um, most of the buildings that I'm going to talk uh, about today are, in my opinion, eligible for the National Register. There are a few that are uh, already listed in the National Register of Historic Places. Um, Okay, I'm going to stick with this for a moment and just give you a little bit of background on the history of the campus. New Mexico State University, originally called New Mexico College of Agriculture and Mechanical Arts, was founded in 1888 under the Morrell Act of 1862 and the Hatch Act of 1887. And like all land-grant colleges across the, the West, uh, the focus was on agricultural and mechanical arts with a mission of educating the working class in what they called practical education. One of the things I think is kind of nice about NMSU is that a liberal arts education was also part of the original mission of this land-grant college. And I mean, history and liberal arts is important to us, so uh, I appreciate that about our history. In New Mexico, Hiram Hadley was instrumental in the creation of the New Mexico College of Agriculture and Mechanical Arts and was its first president. Um, he began with actually a predecessor college. Originally, uh, some of the kind of founders of Las Cruces, well, they weren't founders of Las Cruces, but kind of movers and shakers of Las Cruces, people like John McPhee, George Bowman, you may recognize street names after them, uh, and Sarah Cassad. Uh, put together a college that they called Las Cruces College. And it was housed, it was very brief existence, and it was housed in uh, unused rooms in the back of an adobe uh, schoolhouse. And actually that's where the um, New Mexico Agriculture and Mechanical Arts College first uh, met too in that building in 1890. Before a new school building was built on the new campus grounds, they uh, plotted out uh, an agricultural experiment station. This was um, untilled land that was donated to the college. And then they also purchased uh, another small tract, a, a farm of just over 200 acres, uh, situated west of the Horseshoe, the area that I noted on the map that we think uh, should be designated on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, and they spent the first years of the life of the college really leveling that land, digging irrigation ditches, and deciding which crops to experiment with. And these included plots for corn, uh, orchards, various kinds of trees, wheat, and a variety of other crops like onions and cotton. Within these lands stood an adobe building that was initially called the seed lab. It's now the nematology lab. It's still in use. And uh, this was already present when the uh, land passed into the college's hands in 1889, and it became the first college building on campus, and it's still in use. This is an adobe building, and it still uh, retains almost all of its integrity, despite how it kind of looks ugly, but uh, because the win windows have been infilled there, but that's really the only change that's been made. Um, there's an addition that's on the back, but that was made very early on in the history of the building. And so it's the oldest building on campus and an adobe building at that, uh, and still largely in its original configuration. It's one of NMSU's most important historic buildings. One of the interesting things that we found uh, in our work was the history of the way the campus was planned out. Because the, uh, you'll see the yellow line that's there, uh, and that goes along uh, College Avenue. And it's, uh, historically, this was called the Pike. And it started off as um, a road that just went to the seed building. It had been created for that purpose. Um, and one of the, the, the uh, researchers that worked on this, a guy named Marty Davenport, uh, he's a surveyor by training besides his uh, history master's degree. And he found it very interesting that this uh, road, College Avenue, the Pike, uh, directly shoots off of the A on Tortugas Mountain, or A Mountain. And his, the theory that he developed for this is that they had this little strip of a road that already existed to go to the seed building. They saw that it was easy to then kind of 
eyeball where to go to go towards the campus by shooting off your eye off of Tortugas Mountain. And so they used that as the axis from which the original campus was developed and the whole campus thus is based on this axis that does not go to true east, west, north, south. It's sort of just directed towards um, Tortugas Mountain. And then when they decided where the A was going to go on Tortugas Mountain, they used that road to shoot it off and actually make it where this just goes straight to the A. The A, by the way, is also eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. Um, and I've confirmed that with the people who uh, administer that program. So anyway, we found that to be a pretty fascinating part of this history. McPhee Hall, uh, or Old Main as it came to be known, was the first academic building, the first real building after, besides the seed building that already existed, uh, for the campus. And it opened in February of 1891. It housed administrative offices, uh, classrooms, a library, a reading room, and faculty offices. So this was sort of an all-encompassing, this is the university uh, kind of building. It was named for John McPhee, uh, who was instrumental in founding the school originally as Las Cruces College and then as uh, New Mexico College of Agriculture and Mechanical Arts. And he was the first president of the Board of Trustees of the university. The architect for this building was George King, um, and it was planned in a grand Italianate style. It opened on September 9th in 1890, and uh, I was astounded to find that when it had the groundbreaking ceremonies, 3,000 people in the little burg of Las Cruces uh, came to, to be present at the laying of the cornerstone, which was made from locally quarried limestone and weighed in at half a ton. In its early years, the campus buildings were designed in the latest architectural fashion, which in this case was kind of a vernacular interpretation, I would say, of the Romanesque revival. And the things that make it potentially, I mean, there's really sort of mm, not a very strong style to these buildings, but the um, arched openings at the windows, at the doorways, the turrets, um, these are all kind of Victorian-era elements, but they particularly are characteristic of the Romanesque revival. There's also um, on uh, the women's dormitory, you see this uh, here. It's almost Gothic looking. These are sort of not great examples of the Romanesque revival, but uh, I think that's what they were trying to evoke at the time. During the first 15 years of the 20th century, New Mexico uh, A&M became the hub of the state's agricultural industry. In 1911, the college established an agricultural extension department to advance knowledge of dryland farming uh, for arid climates, and they taught this through uh, extension programs and through what were called Farmers Institute, which were sort of summer school uh, workshop type programs. In 1907, under the presidency of Luther Foster, um, Henry Charles Trost of El Paso, Texas, with the architectural firm of Trost & Trost, made sort of a landmark um, new plan for the campus. And it's the Trost plan and his idea, his vision for the way the campus was supposed to look that has really influenced the way this campus has, has looked ever since. Uh, and he began that with the construction of a building for the uh, Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, uh, as well as the gym, which is behind uh, the YMCA. The YMCA building is now the Conroy Honor Center. The gym is now part of the music building. Throughout Texas, and I'll just tell you a little bit about Trost first, throughout Texas and Arizona and New Mexico, Henry Trost made a name for himself as an innovative architect. He used a variety of styles that were popular at the time. The Chicago School, which was sort of the hot school of architecture at the time, Prairie Architecture, the Mission Revival style, the Spanish Colonial Revival, and the Pueblo Revival style, and he blended all of this together to create a new look that he thought was particularly appropriate for the Southwest's arid climate. Uh, and he called these things himself in his own time. He said that these were Spanish Renaissance uh, buildings. And I'll come back uh, to these buildings in a moment. But I want to also note that part of this was to develop a plan for the campus. And the horseshoe was the central part of the campus. And uh, this was his plan for it. And you'll notice the difference between the horseshoe today 
which um, goes straight down here. And at that time, it had these shoulders. Okay, so it looks somewhat different. We've, alt we've added buildings, we've added additions to buildings that eliminated those shoulders. Uh, but it once looked like, you might think, well, okay, the oval is what looks like a horseshoe, but actually um, a horseshoe uh, arch, which is an art, a particular style of a, an arch in a building, takes the form of the horseshoe that is shown here. And he uh, used this horseshoe to give the campus not only a planned and centralized location, but an aesthetic uh, appearance to it that would be, um, you know, kind of artistic. Uh, and it called, the plan called for six buildings on either side of the horseshoe with a central administration building at the head of the horseshoe. And Trust also intended all of these buildings to be out of yellow brick with terracotta tile roofs to conform to his Spanish Renaissance idea. And as we'll see, uh, instead they used uh, stucco for a lot of the buildings. We look here at the uh, YMCA building at the corner of Espina and University Avenue, or kind of, corner of the Espina and the Horseshoe, I guess you could say. And this was the first campus building designed by Trost, and it actually preceded the development of that horseshoe plan or the acceptance of it. The YMCA actually commissioned this building. It was to give, uh, a, be a residence hall for men to give male students a place to live, to exercise, and to study. And the university didn't own this building until 1964 when they purchased it. Um, they also built, let's see, the other building that he designed in conjunction with this was the music building. This was built in 1911, and it, along with the Conroy Honor Center, are two of the oldest buildings on campus, and certainly the two oldest of his designs on campus. This particular building is also, both of these buildings were designed in kind of a Mediterranean look that he wanted to achieve for them with the red tile roofs, the stuccoed walls. The one that's the Conroy Arts Center, or the Conroy Honor Center, rather, now is, um, I would call that sort of Italian Renaissance revival. Um, this building takes on a slightly different look because of the uh, entry porch that's there that has kind of a cottage look, like an Italian cottage of some sort. And inside the gymnasium that was uh, the reason for this building is still, uh, is still present, although the building inside has been changed dramatically. And this housed the old gym, by the way. Trust also built the Central Administration Building, or he designed it rather, Old Hadley Hall, which was uh, named to honor the, the university's first president. It was built in 1908. And it's a beautiful, or was, a beautiful Mediterranean-style building crowned by a large galvanized iron dome with a tower on either side and an elaborately arched central doorway. And this became the official emblem of New Mexico College of Agriculture and Mechanical Arts for many, many years. He continued, Trost continued to shape the look of this campus. He designed Goddard Hall in 1913. It housed the uh, engineering department, was built by Otto Kruger, who was a local contractor. And it's a three-story Italian villa-style building, the original part. It's also got a long extension that was added, I believe, in the 1930s, if I remember correctly. And, and it stands out on the horseshoe because of its tall domed tower. It was named for the former dean of engineering, Ralph Goddard, who was a pioneer in the field of radio communications. And I think in one of the most tragic and ironic stories I know, Goddard was uh, accidentally electrocuted in 1929 while preparing for an evening broadcast. So a sad end for Mr. Goddard. Trust also designed the prairie-style uh, President's House, now the Nason House, in 1918. This is uh, located not on the Horseshoe, but on University Avenue, and it's somewhat of, uh, it's overshadowed by the buildings around it, so many of you may miss this building when you drive by, but I think it's one of the more interesting buildings on campus. It was built by the Bascom French Company, uh, and it housed uh, university presidents and their families for over 60 years before becoming home to the Center for Latin American Studies 
1983. It's the only Prairie School building on campus. Um, and Prairie School architecture is um, most associated in the public imagination with Frank Lloyd Wright. This doesn't have a lot of um, affinities with Wright's kinds of designs, but it's very much in keeping with the Prairie School buildings that proliferated throughout the Midwest on the Great Prairies. And it's called that uh, style because of the uh, long horizontal lines of the building, the very low-pitched uh, hipped roof, and the very wide overhanging eaves of the windows, which cast a wide band of uh, shadow uh, during the day across the building, emphasizing horizontality. Uh, and this was thought to be most appropriate for the Great Prairies uh, because it mimicked the horizontal lines of the horizon on the plains. Trost also designed Young Hall in 1928, which originally housed the campus library. And this is now something to do maybe with Roxy? Is that right? Um, along with the President's House, it's one of the few historic buildings on campus with a brick exterior, which is actually what Trost originally had planned to have for his buildings rather than stucco. And its red tile roof lends still a vaguely Mediterranean kind of look to the building. Now, Trust died in 1933, and only five of, I believe, nine buildings that he designed are still standing. But his protege, Percy McGee, took over campus design by about uh, 1929, and McGee strove to follow his mentor's vision and designed what I think are some of the most beautiful buildings on campus. Kent Hall is one of those, uh, built in 1930. And this was originally a much-needed men's dormitory. It now houses the University Museum. It's a mission revival-style building, and I couldn't decide what image to use for this because it's an interesting building from almost every vantage point. This is the front of the building, but it's a U-shaped building with a courtyard at the back. Uh, it's, where, it's the part I always see because I usually come in through the courtyard entrance that has a lovely colonnade. Uh, it's slightly altered, the back is, but I think the building is still... Uh, quite eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. Um, the notable features here that you can see on the front are uh, there's, you can't see this very well, but if you go and look at the building itself, you'll see that there's a really beautiful uh, kind of Moorish arabesque pattern that has been installed here in the panel. And then this uh, domed tower also, I think, lends a lot of interest to the building. And then one of my favorite buildings is Foster Hall. This too was designed by Percy McGee. It was built in 1930, the same year as Kent Hall, and for the School of Agriculture and Biology. And it has a strong Spanish Baroque character to it. And the characteristic is that elaborately carved or uh, molded uh, entryway, which is called a churigoresque pattern. It's a, very much of a Spanish Baroque kind of design, and there are also elaborate window hoods over the windows. And then one of my favorite things about this is the murals that are in the foyer. These were painted by a woman named Olive Reed, Olive Reed, who is from Santa Fe. And I didn't bring you all of the murals, but this particular one has a child with a kale of cotton, one of the things that we developed on this campus. Uh, there's another image that you can kind of see over to the right where they're um, harvesting corn. And one of the things I think is really interesting, let's see if I can aim this here, is the ceiling here, which um, I, I talked to somebody in the biology building while we were looking and photographing at this building, and they pointed out that this is sort of macrobiology, and this is microbiology up here on the ceiling with various uh, organisms that you would see under a microscope. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting how they really thought hard about murals that fit in with the teaching mission of the, not only the campus but the particular building. And uh, these were paid for by the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, during the New Deal. Another building that uh, Percy McGee designed was Dove Hall which sits just off of the horseshoe on the, the kind of northeast corner of the horseshoe. Another building that you can easily miss, uh, I think, but it's a lovely one, designed to house the Home Economics Department. 
And this has special significance, I think, because it was built by workers with the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, during, if this was the major um, jobs program during the New Deal of the, of the Great Depression, Rose, President Roosevelt's uh, program to put uh, men to work. And in the case of uh, WPA, WPA workers were unskilled workers typically who uh, were put to work on these buildings. This building and the biology annex, uh, which was originally um, for aeronautical studies, if I remember correctly, those are the two of the only WPA built buildings on college campuses in New Mexico according to the State Historic Preservation Office. So we think these are particularly significant. It has a red tile roof, uh, segmentally arched portals beneath a wrought iron balconette, which you can kind of see right there. Um, two masonry benches with scrolled sides that bracket the front staircase. Um, and inside it's been remodeled extensively, uh, but it also has its original I believe it's iron staircase that goes up to the second floor. Uh, it was named for Claude Dove, the college's first professor of education and psychology who had come to the campus in 1935. It was named after, long after it was built. Now during the, I want to step back and look at the agricultural history a bit of the campus. During the 1920s, Fabian Garcia, who was a graduate of uh, New Mexico A&M and one of the most influential agricultural botanists in New Mexico, uh, came to NMSU where he developed a wilt-resistant chili pepper. And this was one of several innovations that he lent to agricultural studies in New Mexico throughout his important career. He came to the Mesilla Valley originally from Chihuahua, a member of a very poor family. He was four years old when he arrived in the valley in 1875. He was in the first graduating class of New Mexico um, College of Agriculture and Mechanical Arts and then went on to take an advanced degree at Cornell University uh, and then he returned to New Mexico in 1913 and was named the director of the Agricultural Experiment Station and its horticulture farm. The work he performed uh, here at the experimental farm helped to start the chili and pecan industries here in New Mexico and are particularly significant to the development of the Mesilla Valley. And there are two buildings, as you probably know, on campus that have been, maybe you don't know who they were named for him, though. Uh, Garcia Annex, which was originally known as Garcia Hall, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then Garcia Hall, which took the name, and so they had to name the other one Garcia Annex, I guess. Uh, I personally would like to see Garcia Annex restored to the name Garcia Hall. Uh, and then also the Fabian Garcia Horticulture Farm which are all named in his honor. And this horticulture farm is on the other side of the freeway from here. Uh, the university first obtained land for this farm in 1904 and conti has continued to add land. The last acquisition, I believe, was in 1991. This was the second experimental farm because the first one was the college farm on campus. And um, I encourage you all to go over, actually, to the horticulture farm and gardens. It has this wonderful little um, garden that has lots of different um, desert plants. They're not all from the United States, but it's sort of an arboretum of plants and they have picnic tables and it's actually a lovely place to go to for lunch. I, once I discovered it, I go there frequently now to just have a sandwich and sit under the trees and it, there's very few people that are, even know about it, so no one's ever there. Uh, and fun to have lunch at and, and uh, kind of contemplate the birds. Uh, it does have a few buildings. There aren't very many buildings here. It's mostly the fields, but this was a building that uh, Fabian Garcia fought hard for every year until this was built around 1913. We only know that because he quit complaining about the fact he didn't have a cold storage building, uh, so we assume it must have gotten built around then, and that um, this was to, to st store things that needed cold storage, and then there's also a packing uh, house that's um, also in its original condition on the uh, farm today. Now the second half of the 1940s, jumping forward again uh, into the development of the campus, uh, ushered in a new era of growth for the campus. By the end of the war in August of 1945, more than 2,000 former students from New Mexico uh, College of Agriculture and Mechanical Arts had served in the U.S. military, and of that number, 124 died in combat. 
by the fall semester of 1946, and I want you to kind of pay attention to these numbers, you'll see the exponential growth of NMSU. Fall of 1946, enrollment was up to 500 students, over half of whom were veterans. And with the promise of more veterans possibly going to enroll here under the GI Bill and bring their families, the college began addressing a serious housing shortage. And so first they obtained some prefabricated housing units and also other building units for various purposes from an army base in Carlsbad to meet that demand. And they were Quonset huts. And we have a couple of them that have been moved from their original location uh, to um, along wells and a bit, um, I'm directionally challenged, but I guess it would be west of wells. Um, and I'm not sure about that, it must be south, south of Wells. At any rate, this, this particular Quonset hut uh, is, I think, an excellent example of how Quonset huts were adapted after the war. It's in pretty much its original post-World War II condition. Um, and this, in my opinion, you wouldn't think the Quonset hut would be eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, but I personally believe that this one may very well be, because uh, you rarely see them in this good of condition. The Agricultural Department also continued to make strides, releasing a new type of acala cotton that resisted wilting, and in 1949, the Department of Agriculture built the Cotton Ginning Research Laboratory near the original college farm, kind of over by the seed building. And this was uh, land that was leased to them from the college to give farmers in New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and California uh, help in developing better techniques for ginning cotton in the post-war years. This gin is a three-story concrete block industrial building, and even though it's an industrial building, though, I find it has an amazing amount of architectural style, and it used to be even more so back in the day. They uh, filled some of this in, but this here was actually an open colonnade, and they had an open colonnade on either side of the building. Those have been uh, infilled, but um, I think this building still retains a great deal of integrity, and the, uh, I was happy to find out that the people who are running the USDA facility are uh, pleased as punch for the possibility of being listed in the National Register of Historic Places, which is a great honor to them. As the college continued to grow, the number of undergraduate and graduate programs uh, expanded. They included new majors, things like um, dramatics or, or uh, theatrical uh, teachings and uh, journalism and agricultural engineering. In the fall of 1946, remember I said that uh, previously the enrollment had been 500 students, and that was back in... Uh, the fall of 46, so this is the next year, the fall of 47, enrollment soared to more than 1,400 students, and the college really began trying to figure out how are we going to house all of these students, and they began building dormitories and other facilities. The first ones that they built were uh, Rhodes and Garrett Halls, uh, built in 1941, and then they expanded this with another, and these are all attached, so they're kind of one complex, with the addition of uh, Hamel Hall. Hamel Hall? I don't know how to pronounce it. Anybody know? Hamel? Okay, Hamel Hall. It was built in 1955 uh, to complete the complex. And actually, this is another building that's kind of set back from the rest of the campus, and I think a lot of people are not really very aware of it, but it's a really wonderful building architecturally. Garcia Hall, now called Garcia Annex. This was is one of my favorites. It was built in 1949 by a construction company out of El Paso, the uh, Level Construction Company. When Fabian Garcia died in 1948, he left the university a portion of his estate, which was valued at $80,000, and it was to create a dormitory for poor boys and boys with Spanish surnames. He himself had come up from poverty. Uh, he himself was uh, a Mexican-American, and he very much wanted to give uh, young men who had come through his same situation, the same opportunities, that great success that he had had. And I think it's a real tribute to him, uh, and this is why I really would like us to restore the full name to this building so that it's not thought of as sort of ancillary, which annex kind of implies. 
So uh, Garcia Hall and Rhodes and uh, Garrett Halls marked the beginning of a new residential district on campus, which also included a new student union and a women's gym, which I don't have a picture for you today because it's hard to photograph, but Renfro Gym, which is uh, kind of back a bit from the natatorium, another building you're likely to miss unless you end up having to park over there. Um, uh, but it's a, it too is a great building. But this one here, Milton Hall, I used to hate this building. As a faculty member, uh, it's a building in which it seems like hallways go nowhere. You need to get to another part of the building. You've got to go outside. You can't find anything. I just despised it. Um, but I've come to really, really like this building as a result of the survey. It actually was built in several stages, which is why it's such a weird building. But it's got some neat features to it. It was, and, and more than that, it's sort of the one building that encapsulates a shift that was going on in the post-war years in the aesthetic, the desired aesthetic for the campus. This first part built here in kind of a Spanish eclectic uh, look was built, uh, begun in 1941. Because of the war, it wasn't completed until 1947. And then um, they came along and made some additions to it to complete the plan that they had originally uh, had in their mind, uh, which are on the back of the building. And I didn't have any really good photographs uh, of this to show you. But they're in more of a modernist kind of style. And by uh, 1960, when that addition was built, the university was trying to project a new image as being, you know, a great place for science and mathematics, and that meant modernism. And so, but they blended them together so that they fit very nicely uh, together. And I recommend that you kind of explore this building because there's also like little uh, patios and things like that around it that are kind of cool. Uh, if you can just get over the frustration of not being able to find whatever it is you're looking for when you're trying to walk through the building. The 1950s brought expansion as enrollment climbed, continued to climb, hitting uh, 1,500 students. Branson Hall, the new uh, library building, saw completion that year, and the English department then uh, moved into the old library, Young Hall, uh, in 1953. And then, in that year, was when the new administration building was built, Hadley Hall. And this um, and the original Branson Library were designed to conform to Trost's Mediterranean vision. Um, and Branson has changed, but actually that's kind of a cool building in terms of trying to create another aesthetic in, in the uh, later in the 1960s. But Hadley Hall was designed by an architectural firm called Schaefer and Merrill. And it has, as you can see, a red tile roof, a stuccoed exterior, arched entryways, and a really cool uh, marble. Let's see if I can get this on here. This here is very nice marble. Uh, and the, the porch there, the entryway, is of marble. Another building, this is a building that probably most people either don't notice because it is so sort of mundane, or you might think that this really has no, that why should we keep this building? And it's one of my, it's become one of my favorites, uh, and that is the O'Loughlin House on University Avenue just east of the President's House. This was built as a model home for the Home Economics Department. It's a ranch-style house with a few little territorial-style kind of elements along the porch. Um, and it's very much intact. I've been inside, and it looks almost identical. And you can see why they might have thought it was a model home for promoting kind of moderately priced housing in this era. It's also, I think, important. One of the reasons that I like this building is that the Home Economics Department was really the first department on campus created with women in mind. And we may think in today's world that, well, OK, home ec for women, that's a pretty sexist idea. But in its time, it was recognizing that what women did was important uh, and that there was, um, you know, there was more than just something you're born knowing how to do, that it's something that you could learn to be more efficient and so forth. Uh, and this home was, signifies that belief about women's education. In 1955, enrollment finally breached the 2000 student mark. Roger Corbett became president that year. And he promised that within 15 years, there would be more than 5,000 students on campus, and we would eliminate the stigma of being a small institution. 
And his vision for the campus also included ideas about growing big, grow the campus. And so uh, several things happened. One is that on December uh, 17th of 1958, the Board of Regents changed the name of the college to signify its new status as New Mexico State University of Agriculture, Engineering, and Science. So engineering and science here become very important. And the former engineering, agriculture, and arts and sciences schools were upgraded to colleges. Uh, the first doctoral degree was granted in 1960. And to carry out his vision, a number of new buildings were built on campus. And these were, uh, they did these in a style to try to articulate this new modern idea we have for ourselves as a center for science and mathematics in New Mexico. Among the new buildings he built were the chemistry building, Jet Hall, uh, the astronomy building, and Gardner Hall, all built between 1956 and 1959, right along the horseshoe in the center of campus. And one architectural firm designed all of these buildings, uh, Wilkemood and Millington. And they, I think, did a beautiful job of kind of combining the uh, Mediterranean appearance that Trost had so promoted with this more modernistic idea of having a glass curtain wall uh, at the opening of the building that to signify this idea of m moving into the modern world. Um, at the same time, they stripped these Spanishy kind of buildings as a lot of the ornament so that you got more space, labs that you needed with a minimal cost. And this is something that was common throughout the 1950s and 1960s, designing with less ornamentation for lower cost, and not just here, but throughout the United States, which is why we have a lot of ugly buildings built in this era. And I think given the ugliness of much architecture in this period, these are really fine buildings for their time. Jet Hall was built in 1956. Um, the Chemistry Building in 1957, Gar Gardner Hall also in 57, and the Astronomy Building in 1959. All were stuccoed masonry buildings um, with these uh, curtain walls and this kind of sleek technical look. Uh, all of them are eligible, I think, for the National Register of Historic Places, even though some of them, uh, the Chemistry Building in particular, but also Gardner, have these big clunky additions that are on the back. The one that doesn't uh, meet the criteria, in my opinion, is Jet Hall uh, at the bottom of the horseshoe because they put its addition on the front and kind of screwed up that um, lovely curtain wall that we see in this picture. At the same time, while they're doing all of this scientific build or buildings for the sciences and engineering on campus, they also redevelop the agricultural areas of the campus. And they went back to the old college farm, and they built a number of new buildings like um, Neal Hall, which included a slaughterhouse, uh, a wool lab, and uh, a lab for studying poultry pathology. Uh, there's also a herdsman's residence, which is uh, also called the farm residence, and it's, I don't have a picture of it because it's sort of shrouded in trees. It's hard to see, but it's on a spina just down a bit from this building. The Livestock Judging Pavilion, which was uh, built in 1957, and I'm sorry, this is a dark image, and a sheep barn built also in 1957. And then they dealt with the, the increasing housing problem that they were having, a persistent housing problem, by constructing two large housing complexes in 1958 and 1959. One was Sutherland Village, and the other is Tom Fort Village. And these consist, Sutherland Village, uh, the first one built, consists of 200 identical uh, boxes, basically square boxes made out of concrete block uh, with steel casement windows. Uh, they have block fences around the back, a nice little yard, and these were intended for married um, students, possibly with small children. Uh, and so the park was developed in conjunction with this to serve the, the children. Uh, and these buildings uh, have not changed one iota. Uh, since their time, that at the time that they were built, they were like, had the most modern appliances. I think those appliances are still in those buildings. <laughs> and the students who live with them are not so happy with them anymore. But um, because there's just, it's very hard to change a concrete block building. These have remained highly intact. And I have to tell you, it's unusual for a college campus to still have the housing district that it built in the post-war era is still present on campus. Usually these have been torn down long ago. 
And that uh, increases the historic significance of this particular district. And then at the, the, the very year that they started moving students into Sutherland Village, they needed more. And they built the Tom Fort Village, which I think has another 100 uh, houses. In the 1960s, the legislature began to really acknowledge the sort of changing vision uh, that Corbett had for the university, the changing mission of the university. And so in 1961, with a constitutional amendment legally changing uh, the university to name to New Mexico State University, it signified everything that Corbett had been trying to develop. By 1964, the university had 74 permanent buildings, not, not including the Quonset huts, uh, 3,500 acres of campus grounds, an experimental farm and orchard, a 61,000-acre cattle and experimental ranch, and numerous farm buildings and barns. And then in 1990, um, we had, you know, continued to grow exponentially by then, and so the university brought in a new uh, master planner, a man named Martin Hoffmeister, who developed a new master plan for the campus, and he uh, encouraged the regents and the university president to try to recapture the old trost look, to go back, because what I haven't, what I've glossed over here is in the 1960s, a bunch of buildings were built, but I must say, once we, I've always thought of them as ugly. Just, you know, like, let's see, uh, you know, the business building or the present uh, Garcia Hall or even Monagal Hall. But when we started surveying them for this uh, study and taking a picture where you're just focused on not what it looks like in context, but just looking at that building, you see that some of these are actually interesting examples of the modernist architecture that was popular in the 1960s. Some of these buildings may be eligible for the state register. They certainly are things that we should think about before we tear them down. But the thing I have to say about them, my, the students who worked for me, they were like very resistant to these buildings because they were like, oh, they ruined the look of the campus. And indeed, they do, they stick out sort of like sore thumbs. The one example I would say, uh, exception I would say to that, lovely building that I didn't bring an image of, but is Walden Hall. And uh, it uh, has these beautiful, sinuous uh, pilasters, and it's really a lovely building. Um, but in general, the look was sort of getting to be a hodgepodge. And so Hofmeister believed that to create a really cohesive and beautiful campus, we should go back to the original Trost design. And I suppose the uh, kind of best example of doing that um, besides perhaps the nursing building, is the Skeen Hall, which was built in 1999 or completed that year. Since uh, everybody knows this building at the corner of Espina and the Horseshoe on the site of the old Miller Fields. And this is a very good example of Hofmeister's attempt to return to Trust Vision. And I believe that the university got an award one year for the redevelopment according to uh, Trost, Trost's old plan. It has all the elements of the Mediterranean look that Trost sought, the red tile roof, uh, the stuccoed exterior, even though he expressed a desire for uh, yellow brick, it actually turned out to be mostly stucco on campus, the domed uh, tower. And uh, he also designed landscapes. I believe he was the I'm not sure about this, whether he was the designer of that circle. Uh, but one of the things that he was a big proponent of is creating a mirror of uh, the horseshoe. And to express that, there's the Regent's Grove and the Duck Pond over by the Educational Services Building. That's supposed to create a grassy area that uh, sort of echoes, if you will, the, horse, the grassy area of, of the horseshoe. Uh, and it's one of the areas that the uh, preservation planners, even though that's very modern, are, are suggesting that we really try to keep that and, uh, and keep capturing, capturing that, I suppose, in the new master plan. Not all of Hofmeister's plans went into effect, but his push to return to the original architectural appearance of the campus uh, became popular not only uh, with architectural aficionados like myself, but with students, faculty, and the community. And I think that the new master plan that's been promoted is trying to follow Hofmeister's lead, create um, a campus that's visually cohesive according to the principles that Trost set out. 
um, and also, you know, serve us as we try to expand uh, the educational endeavors in agriculture, science, and the humanities. I hope and I urge you uh, as students and as alumni uh, to encourage the planners as they develop the master plan to honor the architectural heritage of NMSU as they go and move us on into further on into the 21st century. So are there any questions or other thoughts that I might entertain from you all? Yes. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, you believe the lobby building should be I'll answer that in two parts. I base that assessment on the fact that I used to be the National Register Coordinator for the state of Oklahoma. And so I'm very confident about uh, what it is that the National Register criteria are for listing in the National Register of Historic Places. And basically what they require is uh, that first of all, a building have some sort of historical or architectural significance uh, or some other kind, there's, there's four categories of significance, but those are the two that most of these buildings and landscape elements fall into. Um, that the, and that they retain uh, sufficient integrity so that someone coming, it's kind of the rule of thumb is if you brought somebody back from say the 1920s or the 1940s, whatever point in time, and we're, we're developing this up through uh, the present uh, 50 years ago, so it'd be 1958. So if you brought somebody back in 1958, blindfolded them, and stood them in front of the building, took the blindfold off, would they recognize where they were? That's one of the ways of thinking about integrity. And you can have various losses of integrity, like the windows can be removed and replaced with, you know, the beautiful multi-pane windows replaced with single-pane windows, and that's a loss of integrity. And at some point, you can lose total integrity by a succession of those changes. But those are the kinds of things that the National Register looks, looks at, and it has to be at least 50 years of age, and usually it has to be on its original site to be eligible for the National Register, be in its original context. Um, the, but the process uh, that goes through is that the, the a property gets nominated to the National Register, it's sent to the State uh, Cultural Review Board, which is um, up in Santa Fe. There's a commission that, or committee that reviews that, the staff reviews that, uh, and if they give their okay, it goes on to Washington. And uh, rarely does Washington reject a nomination that the state uh, says they think is eligible according to the criteria that it has been known to happen. Usually for political reasons though and not for um, substantive reasons, I should say. So, um, but in this case before we, because we kind of want the, we realize that there's a master plan um, that's been developed. We want um, the university to embrace uh, this idea of nominating properties to the National Register of Historic Places, which is actually their responsibility as recipients of federal funds. And um, uh, so we'll be undergoing a, a series of public meetings over the next six months um, to get feedback on the master plan. There might be other properties or, because even objects like that ugly fish pond that I pointed out, uh, and or did I did I do that? Did I point that out. Um, well, back in uh, when I showed Hadley Hall, there's this kind of near Hadley. There are these two sort of I don't know how to describe them. They look sort of like blobs of rock. Uh, but these were memorials that were built by particular classes uh, back in the 19 teens and 20s, I think. Um, and the the one of them was used uh, to dunk. Um, sorority and fraternity pledges in, you know, as part of the hazing. And they, it would be like, you're going to go fish with your face, I guess. And so um, it was called the fish pond. And they're really monstrous looking, I must say. I think they're ugly uh, and sometimes they smell. But uh, they would be eligible for the National Register of Historic Places because that's what they look like in the historic time. And they have a significance to the history of the social life of the university. So. Uh, there's also one other property that I didn't mention uh, that's a great one that's down by the seed building and it has, uh, there's an arroyo there and then this big giant tree and I can't remember, do you know John the variety of tree it is? It's a, oh, 
some kind of cedar from Lebanon cedar, something like that. It's huge. And in the 1920s, uh, it was popular throughout the country for literary societies to meet and read poems and short stories and such like that. And here on the NMSU campus, they would meet under that tree to read their poems and short stories, and it was called the Story Tree. And that, too, is eligible for the National Register, uh, even though it's not a building. It's a landscape element, and those are also eligible. You had a question, John? Has the, uh, you said that the university should embrace this, and I just wonder, has the Office of Facilities and Services and the Campus Architects Office, have they embraced the, the historic work that you've done? That's a good question. Um, I don't know uh, the answer to that. I, I'm working for the University Architects Office, and the people that I'm working with I think this has been a great study and a great plan. Uh, we're also working with uh, some uh, planning consultants out of Albuquerque, uh, Karen Van Sitter's um, company, and um, it's, uh, it remains to be seen. And there are certain, this is why I, I don't know whether we will actually nominate um, the 1960s buildings to the State uh, Register of Cultural Properties. I could understand that they need spaces to do the things with the master plan, and if I were going to sacrifice something, I would sacrifice those buildings personally, although there are a few of them that I really think are important, but others maybe less so. Um, but it'll be, uh, on the one hand, these meet the criteria for the National Register. It is the university's uh, obligation as the recipient of federal funds to actually actively nominate what's eligible. Um, but, uh, you know, how that will go over, I don't know. So we'll see. Yes? Um, there is no prohibition whatsoever from the feds from doing anything to a National Register building. One of the big myths about the National Register is that it prevents you from touching the building. Uh, what it requires is a process of consideration of alternatives to negative changes. However, uh, here in New Mexico, everything that's listed in the National Register of Historic Places also is listed in the State Register of Cultural Properties. And the state regulations have much more teeth than the federal regulations. And they, they actually, whereas under the federal regulations, all you have to do is sort of go through the motions of acting like you've considered an alternative. The state actually expects you to consider alternatives. And so there is um, a downside, I suppose. On the other hand, uh, you know, we, the, the addition that was recently built on the bio, on Foster Hall, uh, the, the both rehabilitation, but also elevator addition that was built on the Conroy Honor Center. I know the Conroy Honor Center went through the uh, process of review with the feds, and I presume that the, the biology building also did so. Uh, so it doesn't prevent changes. It doesn't prevent modernization. If, for example, Gardner Hall, I know they need, uh, you know, the laboratory space to be in, uh, better for them, and there's nothing that would prevent them being able to fix that. I do also have to say that Gardner Hall has some wonderful little tiny details on the inside, uh, particularly in the lobby areas and hallways that I would hope that they would keep, but there was nothing in the laboratory spaces that I saw that would uh, be anything that anybody would care about. And it's expected that buildings change over time to meet new needs, uh, and there's ways to achieve goals both ways. Now, tearing them down, uh, the, nothing in the federal regulations prevents you from tearing it down. All, in fact, I call it the National Register of uh, Documentation. All they require is documentation. Take some photographs, do drawings that might already exist in the architect's office, and actually that's all that's required. But the state will ask them to think hard about whether there's not an alternative piece of property that would meet their goals. Yeah, I understand that. And uh, oddly, uh, one of the member in the of the architect's office, he has a special fondness for Branson. So, I mean, we had to look really hard to see the charm of that building, but eventually we did. <laughs> it actually, when you get, when you step back and take it, I could show you a photograph of it where it actually kind of looks cool. And it took me a long time to recognize that as a building that really expresses the spirit of the architectural times when it was remodeled. Um, so, but 
you know, that remodeling, one of the things about that, although Branson Library is more than 50 years old, the remodeling was less than 50 years old, and not until that remodeling is 50 years old would it be eligible for the National Register. So. Yes? How would the campus planning unit know the current I don't know fully. Larry Kreider might be able. He was in on the master planning meeting, more master planning meetings, and I've seen a presentation about it. It looks to me like maybe every 10 or 15 years they revisit the plan based on what it looks like in the historical record. And I found lots of times just across the nation working with planners that there are plans that are created and rarely are they followed. <laughs> they kind of sit on a shelf, but uh, they can be used to guide and to raise funding. Um, and in this case, um, I know that they're planning the convention center, uh, an art center, and they're wanting to, to redevelop the area around um, Milton Hall, um, uh, Garcia, Annex, Corbett Center, all of that area, which is, quite frankly, very unesthetic. Uh, it's at the core of the campus, and it once was that the whole residential district that this was part of faced on that, and it was a nice area, and actually their, their plan to make that happen, I think, is a really good one. So I, I personally think that the historic elements and that what their vision for campus don't have to be thought of as in conflict. They can be thought of as enhancing one another uh, if we kind of work together about it. And a good historic preservation office will um, promote that kind of cooperation. So I think we have a good one here in New Mexico. Any other questions or comments? Okay, thank you very much for coming. I think there are refreshments uh, in the back.